Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. You know, Andrew, to tell you the truth, everything is beyond my expectation. I knew that I have big personality always, but I did not know that I have the capability of entertaining and hosting people, 37 of them in my dining room, and give all of them enough attention. That is the voice of Nock Suntaranan of Kalaya Restaurant in Philadelphia. Part of it is letting go of a sense of possibility that things would be in some way modestly, radically altered. If you look at it, at least the way that I I look at it, none of the underlying factors that could have given momentum to the reset, none of those have changed. And that is journalist and author Joshua David Stein. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is Nok Suntaranan of Kalaya Restaurant in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in the lineup, our weekly news and information segment, I will be joined by fellow author and journalist Joshua David Stein to discuss some current topics swirling around the restaurant industry. Before we get to all of that, though, I would like to just share with all of you that I am feeling... Very grateful this week, and many of the reasons why have to do with this show and you listeners out there. Earlier this week, a longtime listener, I don't know how he'd feel about being named on the air, so I'll just use his first name, David, from Cincinnati, was in the New York City area. He has, over time, shared some very 
personal stuff with me via Instagram DMs, and I've enjoyed communicating with him. And while he was in the area, he wanted to try to meet up. He was in New York City. I live in the suburbs, but only for another year. I'm coming back, New York City. And I was too busy to get into the city on the day that he was able to meet before he left town. He was, however, traveling by car, so I offered that if he felt like making the trek up to my neck of the woods, we could meet up here, and I was pleasantly surprised that he did that, and he and his colleague Ethan drove up to see me, and the three of us had a coffee. We got to know each other uh, for about an hour and a half, and if you guys are out there listening, I want to thank you for that very flattering effort. That means a lot to me. And then this morning, another listener that I've been corresponding with for a couple of months now, I, I don't want to name him. I don't know how he'd feel about that, and who knows if this will actually work out. But he offered to fly up to New York to guest on the pod since we are back to doing only in-person interviews and his business isn't bringing him up here anytime soon. But he offered to make a special trip just to do the show. And I I have to tell all of you, as longtime listeners know, I started this show as a labor of love. We didn't have a sponsor for at least our first year, if you had told me that after a couple of years, I'd have this kind of relationship with listeners or that we'd have three wonderful sponsors who support us and make it possible for me to continue to devote the time it takes to put this show together. Well, I don't want to say I wouldn't have believed it, but I sure wouldn't have thought it was likely or probable or in the realm of the thinkable, really. I'm not just being falsely modest. What this show has become is something that I really didn't see coming. I never could have predicted. So I just want to thank all of you out there who listen, and especially those of you who take the time to reach out and establish a personal connection. I just really wanted to say that at the top of this week's show because I'm feeling it very bigly today, and I wanted all of you to hear that from me. This episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is sponsored in part by Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, also known as BMRS, founded by industry veteran Brad Metzger, whose first kitchen job was under Wolfgang Puck at the original Spago and based in Southern California, BMRS Hospitality Recruitment matches top-level hospitality professionals with some of the best jobs in the industry, both across the United States and internationally. If you are looking for the next step in your career, from conventional positions like executive chef, pastry chef, and sous chef, to dining room positions like general manager, director of operations, or manager, to outside-the-box directions like R&D and private chefing, BMRS should be the first stop on your quest. There is never a cost to you, the candidate, and BMRS adheres to the strictest confidentiality standards. So reach out and begin a conversation with them today, whether to pursue a specific current listing or just to be sure you're on their radar so they can reach out to you when your dream position crosses their desk. As Brad himself likes to say, it never hurts to see what else is out there. BMRS has created a special email for our listeners. Send a resume to ATC at restaurant-solutions.com or call 310-245-5108 and tell them Andrew suggested you call. Learn more at restaurant-solutions.com and keep an eye out for some marquee listings on BMRS's Instagram feed at BMRS Food Jobs. 
So as I've been doing every week, I want to share my most recent dining experiences with you. I actually had a pretty tame week by my standards dining-wise, mainly because I've been very gratefully busy. I didn't have time to get out that much and, and go out to eat, but I did have two tremendous dining experiences. Last weekend, I was in my old neighborhood. Caitlin, my wife, and I used to live in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, and we were living there around the time that the now super famous Lucali's Pizza launched. I, I knew all about Lucali's. I never got there. The honest reason is that it's a no-reservation restaurant, and I'm a little allergic to lines. I don't like queuing up to get into restaurants. it's I have nothing against, rent, against restaurants who do that or make that their policy. It's just not my thing. Well, last Saturday on the sleepy 4th of July weekend, a very quiet weekend in New York City, Kate and I and my best buddy, Evan Sung, visited Lucali's, and my God, is the pizza there everything it is cracked up to be. You know, very often, I, I say this sometimes to friends when they ask me, uh, burgers and pizza are the two categories I feel this way about. People say to me, does so-and-so really have the best pizza, or does so-and-so really have the best burger? Eh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of great burgers out there. I think there's a lot of great pizza out there. I would say the pizza at Lucali's is among the very small group of pizzas uh, I've had in my time that I would say is actually just world-class, stands apart, phenomenal pizza. It was just mind-blowingly delicious. Uh, I was blown away, not just by the food, but also by the vibe in the dining room there and the music they play and the, and the staff. The whole, the whole thing was just great. It was a little extra special, like I said, because it was a very chill holiday weekend in New York City. And because Evan knows him, I, I, I actually got to meet owner Mark Iacono, who was very generous to us. He's a very sweet guy. And I'm also trying to get him on the pod. I think that might happen. I can't promise that. But Evan got us in touch. And uh, I'm hoping to persuade him to join us here one day. I would He'd be a great guest. I can tell you just from the the 10 minutes we spent talking, he would be an amazing guest. And I'm hoping to make that happen. Then last night, Thursday night, I went to John Frazier's newest restaurant, Iris, in Midtown Manhattan. That's a restaurant that's received very rapturous praise from critics so far. My dining companion was Rick Smilo, CEO of the Institute of culinary education. And I got to say, I'm two for two this week. This was another great dinner. Uh, the menu at Iris combines Greek and Turkish influences rather seamlessly. And everything there was just spectacular. There was a, a lamb sausage that was among the best I've ever had. There was a very cool fried eggplant dish. There was a wonderful Aegean fish stew, or I should say seafood stew. Those are just things that come to mind. Everything was great. As I wrote to John this morning, it's tough for me to really pick standouts. The service was also just great. So to all of you at Iris, if any of you are listening, uh, thanks for making that evening very special for us. I hope that wherever you are and however you feel safe doing it right now, that you are getting back out there and supporting restaurants and, of course, treating yourself to the pleasures that they deliver in the process. And I also want to remind all of you, as I have been doing the last few weeks, that Verona Chocolate, who had signed on with us for a limited time sponsorship last year, are now back in business at their Brooklyn-based school. There is a link to the schedule and more information at the episode listing for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. They are offering professional-level classes taught by such masters as Antonio Bashur, Ron Ben Israel, and Pierre Hermé. One offering, I've mentioned this before, that I have my eye on. If I were signing up for classes right now myself, this is one I would certainly take, is Sarah Tibbetts' class 
on individual seasonal desserts. That is being offered August 17th and 18th. I was fortunate enough to tour their school in Brooklyn last year, just before the lockdown. It's a very impressive operation, and I would encourage you to please check out the roster of classes and register for one or more of them. So in the lineup, our weekly news and commentary segment brought to you by Mies this week. I am pleased to welcome to the pod for the first time, that's kind of criminal, I should have had him on sooner, my friend and colleague Joshua David Stein. For me, Joshua is one of the great thinkers and writers around the food and restaurant world and also one of the truly good souls on my side of that divide. I consider him a friend. He is someone I love talking to about the world we both cover. And I thought you all might like to hear one of our gab sessions where we kick around various things. It's kind of a free association uh, conversation, although there is some structure to it. And I did, of course, edit it after we spoke. And we begin this conversation talking about the quote unquote reset. And to be honest, I did not do the best job teeing that topic up in the actual interview. So for those of you out there who may not be familiar with the way that word is currently being used, it is an industry shorthand that refers to the notion, first floated around this time last year, that the restaurant industry would use the unbidden downtime brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic to at long last find the resolve and the bandwidth to restructure itself and root out some of the generation's old dysfunctions that it suffers from. And with that clarification, I'm going to get right to it. Here is my conversation with my friend and colleague, Joshua David Stein. I feel like you're raring to go this morning. We were supposed to talk an hour from now and I wrote to confirm and you were like, let's do it now. I build my day over when I can do jujitsu. So I have a noon class that I can make if I do this interview now. That is a great reason. I wanted to speak to you. You and I, we get together or sometimes we, we do FaceTime. We talk about the industry as we see it, as you know, people who are on the periphery looking in, but talk to a lot of people in the industry, work with people in the industry. I thought it was maybe a good time to have you come on the show just to kick around some things that are swirling for public consumption instead of just for our own private amusement. You know, one thing I, I wanted to talk about, and it's something you and I you know, have both talked about and and actually even have tried to maybe cover in, in different ways is this notion of an industry reset. It's something I've talked about with various guests on the show, people like Amanda Cohen and, and David Nafeld come immediately to mind. If I'm really honest, and it's something I've been avoiding saying in a public forum, and, and especially on my own show, because I was really a cheerleader for it, I'm starting to feel a bit of a sinking feeling that, you know, as restaurants are reopening, as capacities are going back up, as life in this country is starting to return to an amount of normalcy, I'm starting to feel like maybe this reset that we all thought was going to happen, I don't know if it's going to. I feel like people are immediately being swept up and just running their businesses again. What's your general feeling? And then let's talk about some specifics. Well, I think if you if you define the reset as essential restructuring of the relationship with labor, the food costs, geographic location, menu prices, all of that stuff, which is how we have been talking about it. I think that as things get back to normal, the past year and a half has been so traumatizing that I think people want to forget it and seek comfort and seek a return to life as it was. And part of that is letting go of, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not excited about this, but part of it is letting go of a sense of possibility that things would be 
in some way modestly radically altered. If you look at it in the or at least the way that I I look at it, none of the underlying factors that could have given momentum to the reset, none of those have have changed. And to me personally, then professionally in terms of restaurants, but in all other aspects, the fact that there was this huge disruptive moment where true change could have occurred, the fact that we're snapping back to the grid of what it was before represents another huge missed opportunity. So not to be a downer, but yes, I don't think anything will be reset. You don't think anything will be reset? I think maybe at the margins, people like Amanda and David who were already tilting in that direction will continue their momentum that way. But I think by and large, unless the underlying factors that give rise to the inequality that we see in restaurants, unless those are addressed, then no, I I don't think fundamental change is coming. But also to me, I understand the psychology of what you just said, you know, that people want to get back to things. I I do think that what, from my point of view, the super short-term need of just earning money, right? People were, were earning less money or not earning at all. They were, you know, lucky to come through this thing with their restaurants intact. Those who are out there who still have their restaurants, I think we're back to the sort of day-to-day scramble that enabled people or made it almost understandable that people had put off dealing with some of this restructuring and rethinking how they do business. I, I think when when the possibility of, of serving something like a normal number of customers again became possible, you know, once again, this idea of, of taking the time and organizing and thinking and, and planning for change once again got backburnered. I mean, no pun intended, right? But I think, I think, one of the reasons people were so focused on this notion of a reset during the pandemic was they had they had the time and the bandwidth to think about it. You know, they they were taken outside of their normal routine. They developed some perspective, and they didn't want to go back to things the way they were. Yeah, but I think the problem or the challenge with radically rethinking how you want to do business in a time of complete disruption is that it's almost academic because once the pressures returned that gave rise to those less than desirable situations before, once those conditions returned, you had solved for a sort of business model perhaps during the pandemic, right? But when you have all the when you have the return to normalcy in terms of customers, in terms of what they're willing to pay, in terms of time, in terms of like a returning to a, the standard operating procedure of profit and loss and all of those things, that academic I don't want, I'm not saying academic dismissively, but like the, the idealistic innovations, they can't hold up to that. So in other words, I think that one of the reasons why people were so excited about the reset, us too, I mean, let's be honest, we tried to write a book about it. I didn't know if we were going to say that publicly, but yes, you and I roughly a year ago tried to uh, sell a book project that was about it was called Reset. Yeah. I mean, it was about the notion of a reset. And we were very, I mean, we're supposed to be objective observers. It's hard to be that around this industry. But we were very excited about what it seemed like people were finally going to try to make happen. Right. Except, you know, except I think they, the conditions were so abnormal that anything that was birthed under abnormal conditions like that could never survive when conditions returned back to normalcy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense, but I mean, I, I still would have liked to have sold that book. <laughs> I would have liked to have written that book. But I think, I think, like another, like it's not just restaurants. Of course, it's like 
everything else. It's real estate. It's, you know, the labor market. It's everything is returning to a normal. I just, along with many people, don't feel like that normal works for us. But it doesn't mean that we're not returning to it. So I think this uh, topic in a in a just kind of a spiritual almost way, in a general way, and then also in a practical way, dovetails with what we've seen in the industry. And this is not just true in the United States. I just heard a story on on uh, I was I was listening to the BBC World News the other day, and they were talking about this you know the staffing crisis in in the UK in restaurants in hospitality more generally. The staffing crisis that we've seen. I think is part and parcel of the need for change in this industry. I I think that yeah. you know a lot of people when they were furloughed uh, or the restaurants they worked for closed, they you know they went back home to where they came from to regroup. I think a lot of people who were in the industry you know have found other jobs. You know, like they've gotten their real estate licenses or they've taken office jobs. I hate to make this point because I'm a progressive. Um, And this feeds into a Republican talking point. But I do think that the unemployment benefits have disincentivized workers who work for minimum wage or tip minimum wage or whatever non-sustainable payment has disincentivized them from returning to the kitchen or front of house. Just anecdotally, I went to visit my friend in Hillsdale, New York, and at least three of the places we went to eat were either closed for the weekend because I couldn't find staff or like, you know, had to alter their menu. Or uh, maybe not, this may not be the case where you were, but also uh, we've seen modified hours in a lot of places and also more limited seating. You know, places are just closing portions of their their dining area. Now, I think that one... This, this falls into more partisan divide, but I think one way of looking at that is, oh, yeah, well, we should stop these payments because people are on the dole and we want to incentivize work. But the other way to think about it feeds more into the reset in the sense that, well, maybe the idea isn't to uh, kick them off this assistance, but to ensure that jobs pay a livable wage. No one wants to work for an unsustainable wage. This is kind of what we were talking about before, and it's not a point that's new. That if restaurants are premised, the health of restaurants are premised on the exploitation of labor, then it's not a sustainable business. Yeah, well, this is why I say this is part and parcel of the of the, the this this whole topic, right? Because I think people who for whatever reason, found themselves in the industry, maybe liked certain things about it. And there's a lot to like about the lifestyle and the, you know, the hours and and the the atmosphere. I mean, there's a lot of things that draw people to the restaurant industry. But I think a lot of people who were in it when they had when they had a forced stoppage last year, you know, there was a moment to reflect and say, wait a minute, I'm not happy about certain things. And and then as things go back to just the way they were, I think a lot of those people have made this decision not to come back. You know, I've I've encountered, and I wonder if you have too, two schools of thought. You know, everyone, a lot of people have said to me, well, you know, when the unemployment runs out in September, you know, these people are going to come back. I've had a number of very seasoned industry operators and restaurateurs, chefs tell me that. I respectfully disagree. I, I'm sure some of those people might come back. I think a lot of those people are gone. But I, to I, where? to other jobs, to other professions. But what other jobs? What other professions? Well, I only use the example of got their real estate license because that's something I've actually heard from. And I, I've, I mean, I've heard, you know, it's anecdotal, but I've heard that from a number of people. I mean, there are other jobs out there 
to be had. I respectfully disagree with your respectful disagreement. I mean, this is the the thing. It's not like they're cheerfully rushing back to fill the restaurant restaurant uh, positions. No one's cheerfully running to work for that amount of money in those conditions. But people need to work, and those jobs are there. And I think the opportunity is there to make those positions marginally better. But I think the likelihood is that until there's systemic change and legislative change, it will return to the exploitation that got us in this position in the first place. The lineup is sponsored by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive database designed and developed by a chef for professional chefs and cooks. Just as we help you make sense of industry news, Mies helps you organize your recipes. Mies is a first-of-its-kind tool that is invaluable for anybody who works with recipes. Scale, cost, adjust, record, and teach recipes across a single restaurant or an entire company with Mies. To learn more and sign up for a free trial, visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com slash Andrew. And now we'll get you right back to the lineup. Okay, so we... We respectfully disagree with each other, but you know this does bring up another thing I wanted to say to you, Joshua, which is that the the late great screenwriter William Goldman had this very famous line about Hollywood, which is nobody knows anything. That was his feeling about studio executives and how they made decisions, and that it was important to always keep in mind that it was all shot in the dark and nobody really knew what would work and what wouldn't. Yeah, I've been thinking about that line recently about the future of the restaurant industry, and I don't just mean you know whether or not we're going to have restaurants. Obviously, we're going to have restaurants. I mean this the shape that the industry will take. I mean the format that restaurants will take. I mean whatever metamorphosis restaurants may go through in the coming months and years. I feel like it's all very open right now. I don't feel like even people like you and me who spend a good deal of our waking hours talking to people who are in it and thinking about these things. I don't feel like we really know, but I do feel that Things are going to change. I feel like we may see different business models that we may, I mean, I feel like there's already been in the last, it was already happening pre-pandemic and and for some reasons, I think it's very appealing to people, the 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 sort of the pop-up or residency or kind of, you know, traveling chef model is something that I think for some people is 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 beckoning. Do you have that same feeling that it's, there's almost sort of a primordial swamp moment at hand right now? No. No, you're still a true believer in some sort of reset, which I think is adorable. <laughs> but um, I think that all of none of the conditions that gave rise to the current industry have changed, and therefore it will replicate itself with its slight benefits and massive... Um, harm that it causes. The system is still itself rotten. Can I interrupt you right there? And I'm not I'm not challenging you at all, but just for people listening, most of whom are in the industry, when you say that's a big word, when you say it's rotten, what do you just what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Capitalism. I, I mean like the overall I don't just mean restaurants. I mean the system by which um, you know the rents are squeezed the restaurateurs, if you want, like, yeah, we can talk about restaurants in this way, but like um, all of the profit pressure that restaurants feel and chefs feel, um, the idea that consumers 
don't feel the need for whatever reason to pay a fair price and that all of those pressures squeeze labor and the people who can least advocate and fight for themselves and are the most exploited. Like that's an overall system that chefs feel the pressure, that restaurateurs feel the pressure, consumers aren't willing to pay a fair price, and the people who really get fucked are the workers. That all still exists. All of those pressures still exist. And you can dissect why is it so hard to turn a profit as a restaurateur? Then you get into real estate, and then you get into the power that real estate developers have over the political process. Then you get into, you know, um, the nefarious influence of money on politics. Like when I think about, you know, you and I are talking about restaurants, but of course this is just one iteration of a much deeper system, and that's what I mean is rotten. So, so unless those things change. Yeah, maybe you'll have some chefs who are selling their um, food through Instagram, and maybe you'll have more pop-ups, and maybe you'll have more roving chefs uh, without a restaurant. But I think fundamentally, these things will replicate over and over and over again. Yeah, I agree that we don't really know what's going on, but I do think that the uh, the and we don't know what will happen. But uh, what is that? I'm going to butcher it, but plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Like the more the changes, the more it's all the same. I was kidding when I said what, that you're a true believer in the reset, and I think that's adorable, although I do. I think it's true that you are much less cynical than I am. Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess we both... Well, here's the next question then, right? Because you and I dine out together once in a while. You dine out with some regularity without me as I do without you. How are we able to enjoy a restaurant meal. I mean, I do. And how are the people, you know, you, we talk like this, right. But then you go to a restaurant at the, at a, at the height of a service, you know, uh, uh, when things are buzzing, when people are enjoying it, when, when, when everything's kind of flowing, uh, you know, in the dining room and in the kitchen. And again, you, I don't know what you would call. I mean, you might say something very, uh, ironic and sarcastic about what I'm about to say, but, are we all just doing it for those moments? Like, if you take what you just said, how are how are we able to enjoy a meal out, and how are the people who are providing that experience for us seemingly during the time when they're actually providing it, right? Not on the margins of that time when, um, you know, they're they're dealing with what it takes to do that. What is it that enables, I believe, all of us? to enjoy that time when hospitality, food, service, whatever you want to call it, is being provided. It's a dialectic. You know, like, you can hold both things at once. You can hold, and and we do this all the time in every other aspect of our lives and in all aspects of our life. We hold one awareness that is sometimes competing with another awareness. That's the sort of challenge and also the beauty and also the suffering of of having these experiences. How can you enjoy a, a, a morning at the beach knowing uh, that the world is doomed? How can you enjoy an embrace of your child knowing that he will die? Yeah. Well, Scott Fitzgerald had that line, right? The sign of a first-rate intelligence is being able to hold two opposing thoughts in your mind at the same time. Yeah. But I think that, you know, our inability and mine too, I'm not saying, I'm not outside of this whatsoever but the answer isn't to be willfully blind to one of those realities either one like you know yeah, i'm 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 cynical and i, mean, I don't even think i am cynical i'm a realist 
and I'm saying these things which are critical of the of the industry and of the society in which I live. And I also enjoy, like you said, I love going out to eat, and I love being, you know, existing in this world. So both of those things are true. But I think so often, from the standpoint of a consumer, from the standpoint of the media, and less so, I think, from the standpoint of chefs, because they're part of that nitty gritty world. So often the way that we deal with having to hold those two opposing views in mind at once is to negate one of them or be willfully blind to one of them. That's not an appropriate or virtuous response. Do do people like you and me have a role in this? I mean, we cover it, right? We try to talk to people. We try to be informed. We try to share important viewpoints from within the industry with people outside of it. I mean, beyond that, what what do you and I do, if anything? That's a good question. I don't know. Traditionally, I think what I've done is when I write restaurant reviews, I try to um, side door class critique or, um, you know, sort of labor relations or whatever into these reviews. But I don't do that anymore because I don't, I'm not really writing reviews anymore. I write cookbooks. I talk to people like, you know, you, I don't think it's really, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't, I don't know what my role is. I don't think my role is to speak for others who can also speak for themselves. Um, I don't think my role is really to preach because who gives a fuck what I have to say. Yeah. It's, it's not to be a scold. I, I don't want to be a scold, even though I know I sound like one today but maybe to describe the best way I can the truth of what I see and to hold on a personal and professional level the totality of the experience, meaning both truth, all the truths that I can see. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, before we wrap up, Joshua, what, what do we want to point people to in the way of your work? Well, when is this airing? Uh, tomorrow. So I have a new book coming out at the end of July called Cooking for Your Kids. It's with Fiden. I asked uh, 50 or so of the world's greatest chefs what they make for their kids at home. And on Saturday at 4 p.m., I'm doing a live panel discussion. It's on Zoom, of course, uh, with me, Sean Brock, and Mina Park. And I think your listeners should check that out and then buy the book when it comes out. I will link to both of those things in the episode description for the show. Anything else you want to point people to? I want to point people to your website. It's just your name, right? JoshuaDavidStein.com? JoshuaDavidStein.com. And if you go to that website, I've had a number of people, if I ask them if they're familiar with you, they a number of people have commented to me, Joshua, you go to your website and the first thing you're presented with is a wall of links. Yes. <laughs> and it's to various writings and other things that you've done. It's 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 um, it's fun. I mean, it's organized by journalistic outlet. It's organized by name of subjects that you've done. Uh, I was looking at it before we spoke today. I clicked on the Bourdain link and there were couple of different things about Tony that you would put up. It's it's a very fun way to sort of acquaint oneself with the breadth of your work. So I anyone who's enjoyed hearing you chat this morning, I would encourage them, and I'll link to this as well, to visit your site and just browse. Yeah, I started doing that because so many of the publications that I wrote for uh, went under over these years, and I figured I better start hosting all of my own content so it doesn't just get lost in the ether forever. Yeah. Although... In the spirit of this conversation, eventually it will be. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. But you can enjoy it while it's still here, Andrew. All right, buddy. Listen, thank you for checking in. As always, great talking to you. Great talking to you, too. All 
Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. <laughs> it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite <laughs> ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. Welcome back to the show. My thanks again to Joshua David Stein for joining us for the lineup this week. And before getting to our feature interview with Nok Suntaranan, as we do every week in this space, we want to share some of the hottest and most intriguing jobs that our sponsor, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, or BMRS, is currently seeking great candidates for. This week, BMRS Director of Operations, Jackie Lianza, phoned in to share those intriguing details with me. Here is our conversation. Jackie, thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, of course. So we had Brad on for a while and then he ditched us and then I was doing <laughs> it solo and I guess I screwed that up. So now it's your turn to see if you get to stay in the driver's seat for the jobs of the week that we do here. I'll keep you BMRS. company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I have faith in you. I think you're the chosen one. <laughs> so we were talking before we started recording. Obviously, what we describe here is just the tip of the iceberg, but you do have three new jobs to mention, new chef positions that listeners have not heard before. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about the first of those? We're super excited to have these new opportunities. The first is a culinary director role with the American Gonzo Food Corporation based here in Los Angeles in Venice, and they have multiple concepts. So the culinary director would be overseeing Superba Food and Bread, which has a location in Venice, a second location opening in Hollywood. That's a full service upscale casual concept. Superba Snacks and Coffee, which has two locations, more casual. American Beauty, which is full service, a focus on steaks, upscale dining. And that concept is really poised to grow. So there's an exciting future there. And The Window, which is a quick service concept that's been really successful. They have great burgers. They have two locations currently and getting ready to open another one. Again, culinary director and the salary there is in the 140 to 160 range. And if somebody is interested but doesn't live in the Los Angeles area, is there relocation cost coverage available for that? Yes, the company is considering candidates who do not live in the Los Angeles area and would consider relocation. Awesome. And then the next job, as I understand it, is for a hotel chef position under the auspices of an internationally known chef's company. Is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. So we're looking for an executive chef of a luxury hotel. The chef would oversee multiple outlets and the hotel company is also internationally known. And what's the salary range on that? Salary on that one is 140 to 160K. And that's also in the Los Angeles area? Also in the Los Angeles area, they would consider relocation for the right candidate. And of course, since it's a hotel, amazing benefit package. And then what's the third new one you wanted to highlight this week? So the third one is really special. We're working with a very respected local restaurateur who has multiple restaurants, different concepts here in the Los Angeles area. And he's looking for a chef partner to come in and, and work on a new concept with him. And the compensation we're looking at is around the 100 to 125K range, but with potential for equity. Wow. That's rare. Yeah, so really exciting there. And he's super flexible and would look at a lot of different types of concepts based on the chef's interests. 
And when you say concepts, am I hearing you right? That means that this chef who's looking for a chef partner would actually consider the development of new concepts based on the person they hire for this position? Yeah, that's correct. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. These are all great. I also want to mention, Jackie, people who listen regularly know there's a couple of positions we've mentioned more than once on the show. I know you filled some positions recently, like there was a job in Northern California that we talked about, a property that was going through a complete redesign. I believe there's now a, in real estate terms, there's now a, it's in contract. Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of temporary, at least temporarily, that's kind of off the table. We mentioned last week the restaurant at Shutters on the Beach, which is a fabulous hotel on the west side of Los Angeles. Uh, Their restaurant, One Pico, you were searching for a chef. I understand that is still open. And then the restaurant at Flora Farms in Cabo San Lucas, that is still available? Yes, still available. So they are still actively interviewing candidates for both Flora Farms and One Pico. And then, of course, you all don't just look for chefs and kitchen personnel. You also do front of house, basically any position that a restaurant might need to fill. You have a couple of interesting front of house positions that have come online. Yes, we are working on a restaurant GM for a wonderful luxury hotel in Santa Monica, right on the beach. So it's very popular among locals and tourists. So we're really excited to be working on that one. And compensation there is in the 100K range, plus bonus and all the hotel perks and benefits. And the um, other one that we're working on is for a cocktail bar. It's a craft cocktail bar called Oak and Iron. It's in Thousand Oaks. So it's you know a little bit offset from the Los Angeles area, but has really made a splash. And they focus on garden to glass cocktails and they source directly from a farm that's local and feature a lot of local brewers. And they're currently looking for a consultant mixologist. So this would be a one-year term and someone just to come in and really help to drive the cocktail program there. Also a very cool job. Mm-hmm. Is garden to glass a phrase that I just am t- not plugged in enough to know? I have you, not heard that before. You know, is that their own phrase? Kind of kind of like it is, you know, they, they really pride themselves on that and using the freshest ingredients. And again, they grow a lot of their own herbs that they use in their tinctures. So, you know, it's kind of like a farm to table garden to glass. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not an idiot. Yeah, yes, yeah, no, yeah, I totally yeah, got yeah. it. But I, yeah. uh, that's, very cle- that's very clever phrasing that gives a real <laughs> sense of what they do. And I, I, I've never heard that phrasing before. And I, yeah. I'm sure any mixologists out there who heard it are jealous that they came up with it. It's really good. And as always, Jackie, this is the tip of the iceberg. I know you all are typically, you know, looking to fill anywhere in the, you know, from 80 to over 100 positions, ranging from kitchen positions of all levels to front of house, bar managers, managers, director of ops. And then you always also have some fun outside the box opportunities like R&D jobs and things like that. So we would always direct listeners to visit your guys' site, which is restaurant-solutions.com. And to also keep an eye on your Instagram feed, you guys do a great job of posting jobs pretty regularly, and that is at BMRS Food Jobs on Instagram. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing these jobs, and hopefully you'll get to come back and tell us about some more in the next couple of weeks. My pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. My thanks again to Jackie Lianza for calling into the show, and again, whether to pursue a specific job or just to establish an ongoing dialogue for when your dream job crosses their desk, Brad Jackie and the entire BMRS team would love to hear from you and learn about what you are looking for. Please be in touch with them at their dedicated Andrew Talks to Chefs email address, atc at restaurant-solutions.com or call 310-245-5108. However you reach out to them and whomever you are in contact with there, please be sure to tell them Andrew sent you. 
This is an Andrew Talks to Chefs classic moment. So in our Andrew Talks to Chefs classic moment this week, I have a memory that is not tied to any specific news. To be honest, I saw a new, newish friend of mine, Ayaka Guido, who's a chef I've talked about here on the show, had visited the Inn at Little Washington, and it brought back incredibly fond memories for me of a visit I made there two summers ago. It was a press visit to the Inn at Little Washington that was actually organized and put together by our friends at San Pellegrino. I had never been to this landmark restaurant. It has, of course, for several decades been owned and operated by Chef Patrick O'Connell. This conversation that Patrick and I had was one of my absolute favorites ever on the show. It is definitely a fan favorite as well. It is one that people still mention to me all the time. And I hope you will go check it out after hearing this. But for now, here's just a small snippet of that wonderful dialogue that Patrick and I had just about two years ago. We have certain uh, tools that we've developed of necessity over the years, over the many years. My belief is that we really only have one problem on earth, and that is communication. Hmm. So every night at the staff lineup, I say, and can anybody tell me the only problem we have here? <laughs> it's always communication. So Is this a film reference, an accidental <laughs> film reference? Do you know what I'm referring to? Do you remember Cool Hand Luke? No, but Paul Newman was here for his 65th oh, birthday. Oh, well, Cool Hand Luke, the famous line right before they throw him in the in the box was, uh-huh. what we have here is a failure to communicate. Ah, good, <laughs> good. That was the prison warden or whoever it was, uh-huh. yeah. Well, to help facilitate that, yeah. we have some simple little tools. One is the mood indicator. And each guest is assigned a mood rating Mm -hmm. of 1 to 10 by their front waiter uh, on being seated, which forces the front waiter into focusing on them, analyzing where they are. Mm -hmm. And then he plugs it in numerically into the computer system. Mm -hmm. And it's tracked. The goal being that no matter how upset, angry, or irritated somebody might be on arrival, collectively as a team, we can bring them up. So talk about an empowering exercise. Sure. Uh, Typically, of course, a normal restaurant will say, oh, don't go near table 12. They're having some kind of spat. It has (laughs) nothing to do with us. They're just, she's bitching him out. He hates her. And they're going to get a divorce. So just stay clear of them. We do the opposite. We say, okay, we need to bring up that mood. It was only a six and a half. First of all, what happened? Why Why did they come all the way out here and find themselves in a crappy mood? Well, they got a speeding ticket. They got a flat tire. They had a fight on the way. They got lost. Any of these things can happen. So a normal waiter would say it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us. Because here we got 150 people trying to give them the experience of their life and getting them to come back. They'll never come back if they had a miserable time. So I say, by saying that we gave them perfect service, we gave them perfect food, and they left unhappy, is like saying the operation was a success, but the patient died. It's exactly the same scenario. So we love cranky, mean 
horrible people who have a reason to be upset. And we just say, yes, bring them on. To put so, it in athletic terms, you want the ball. <laughs> you guys want the ball. You're willing to well, throw. You're willing to throw the pass at. Uh, I don't follow anything but tennis, but you're willing to. You're willing yeah. to throw the pass at, yeah. Uh, at, yeah. at last play of the game. One second left. If you don't make Those the touch, if you don't make the touchdown, it's Those all over. Best. You would be the person who would have. You Those would. You want that pressure. <laughs> the ultimate. Um, experience along those lines was they came to me if they can't get a read on the guest they always bring them into the kitchen and then i pull out of them their story so in order to facilitate this kind of communication this connection everyone has a story it's our job to get them to voice that story during the two and a half hours they're here and they will and they want to, but they're just not going to give it to anyone. They have to give it to somebody who's totally receptive and who really wants to hear it and who's interested. And when they sense that, they will just pour it out. Mm -hmm. So one night they said, uh, table, on 12, table 12, they, he told her he wanted a divorce during the meal. And they don't know what's going to happen at this point. It's just a mess. It's like the opposite of like proposing <laughs> yeah, exactly, to somebody. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Did you have a waiter come and take the ring away? Like take the ring. Oh, no, no, no. There wasn't a ring. They had already been married. No, I'm saying, but, yeah. but it was oh. the opposite. Like usually, you come to a restaurant like this to propose. Oh, you do. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes, but this yes. was the exact opposite. So that actually required me to go out and yeah. say, "We fully understand, and that's great." that you've made this decision, but you're here now, and all of us would love to give you a wonderful, wonderful dinner. And perhaps you'd just like to think of it as one last beautiful meal together. And like, cut the crap. <laughs> right. right. And that that was a bit ballsy to enter into their sphere. Totally. <laughs> and? But, they looked at me like, you know, you've got a point. Yeah. And then it was like, why should we fight in such a wonderful place? Yeah. When everyone is conspiring to make us happy, why not just let ourselves be happy for a little while? Again, that was me and Chef Patrick O'Connell from the summer of 2019. And again, we encourage you to please peruse our catalog of more than 200 past episodes at our website, andrewtalkstochefs.com, via the pull-down guests button at the top of the webpage, and that will take you to an alphabetical listing of our nearly 300 guests to date. And our feature interview this week is with Nok Suntaranan. Nok is the chef and owner of Kalaya Restaurant in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The restaurant is a local sensation that made Esquire's Best New Restaurants list recently and has received plenty of other accolades in its first few years. I was lucky enough to eat there last year during the Philly Chef Conference. The food was extraordinary, and Nock is a one-of-a-kind presence in the dining room. I was thrilled to reconnect with her last week here in New York City at an event I mentioned last week. It was a one-night-only collaboration with Hong Tai Mi, another former guest of the show here in New York City. While she was in town, I asked Nock if she could make a little time to interview with me for the pod, and she graciously accepted. And I have to tell you, like so many people, 
people from throughout her life. I am just crazy about Nook. She has a wonderful, generous, sincere energy, and her story for me should be a North Star to anyone who might be thinking of chasing their passion at any time in their life. I also have to thank her friends Stephen and Nino for hosting us and their apartment for this conversation. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with Nok Suntaranan. Here you go. Before we start, I usually ask this kind of thing off microphone, but I want to make sure I get it right. I want to make sure the audience hears it right. Can you give me the proper pronunciation of your full name in the way you would say it if you were back in Thailand? Okay. Not, not the way you do it for people like me. <laughs> if you were back home, how do you pronounce your name accurately? Okay, so let's clarify one thing. Nok is my nickname. Yes. It means bird in yes. Thai. So my full name is Jutatip Suntonon. That's Great. my name and my family name because our name is very long. So 100% of Thai goes by nickname. Oh, is that right? Yes. Everyone has a nickname. Yes, everyone has okay. a nickname. Now I looked up your, uh, I don't want to mangle it. I looked up your, your first name. This might have been Google doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Does your name mean vacation or is no. Google confused? No, Google is very confused. Have you heard that My, before? Because no. you smiled when I said it. No, no, no. I typed in the American spelling uh-huh. and it said vacation. The, I said that can't the be The full right. name, Jutatip. Yeah. Jutatip is mean crowd jewels. Crown yes. Jewels. Yes. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Yes. All right. So, so your parents had high hopes for you. I don't think they're wrong, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can call you Nock, though? Yes. Okay. Everybody call me Nock. Okay. Nock. Yes. Okay. And I want to make sure I get the name of your restaurant correctly, which I know was also your mother's name. Kalaya. Kalaya. Yes. Kalaya. So there's an accent on the phone mm-hmm. on the last day. Okay, great. So we've never sat and talked at length. I'm just going to be very straightforward. Um, All right. Can you please tell me? and tell people listening, where were you born? And and just generally speaking, what was sort of the circumstances of your childhood? I born in the southern part of Thailand in a small village in, it's called Yantakao, and I come from Trang. Trang is a small province in the southern part of Thailand. It's the mixed community of Thai, Islamic, and Chinese. You know, we have a lot of diversity in our village and that I did not know until I grew up and I look back that I grew up among all those diversity of the culture so everybody got along everyone got along yeah that's unusual Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes it's just like you know we go to you know our Islamic friends um, funeral or they come to our Chinese New Year yes and eat with us or we go to celebrate, uh, you know, when they open fast during Ramadan mm-hmm. because they have great food. That's how I grew up. Tell me about your family. I am the older one, the only girl. I have two brothers. My father worked for healthcare. He worked in the hospital. My mother, um, she had a stall selling curry paste. 
and some groceries in the market. And was that like a weekly market every day? No, it's every day, every day because uh, and early morning, because in the southern part of Thailand, people work in the rubber plantation, so they have to start super early morning after midnight. That's you know when they go and start their work. And then they have a break in between. So people, when they done about 2, 3 a.m., the market start at 4 because that's when people coming to get their breakfast yeah. and do their grocery shopping before they go and finish their, their project in the rubber plantation. 4 a.m., the market is up and alive. Did that seem unusual to you growing up or were so many people working in that place that it just seemed that was just how it was? I thought that's how the life supposed to be yeah. because I grew up seeing my my mother working very hard and when we were young me and my two brothers instead of playing we always you know help her in the market we help her to do her curry paste we work in her production line so I did not know about the outside world how it should be because we don't have television we only have radio. The newspaper come from Bangkok and it was very expensive and we, we don't have newspaper every day. We don't watch TV. So that's for me, that's the whole world. That's our life, working. And, mm-hmm. and what kind of kid were you? Like growing up, were you, I cannot imagine you to be a shy kid, but what kind of kid were you? Tough. You were tough. <laughs> How, what does that mean? Tough and it's just like, you know, because I have to help my mother work in the market and take care of my two brothers. Yeah. So we, I didn't know the word of street smart until I Googled it when I was older. And then I came to realize maybe I'm part, you know, that's what that who I am, you. street smart. Because we have to survive. Um, I have to help my mother in the, ki- in the kitchen, in the market, go home, take care of my, my two brothers. They're boys. So I have to be tough enough to put them in line. Right. So, yes. so being the girl in the family, you had to project Especially a little extra the, the strength. the older one yeah. and, 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 and the big sister. Right. Now, but yeah. when you say street smart, to me that means like, you know, you were at, helping at the market. You were a kid. Maybe to me that means you had to keep an eye out. Make sure nobody stole anything or make sure nobody... Is that what you mean? Yes, that kind and, of thing? and like at night time when I have to ride my bicycle and go to do delivery of her curry paste into the restaurant, you know, there was some of the kids that they like to bully, they like to make fun of us, of me, like, oh, you know, this is her, her mother selling shrimp paste. And I will, I always have the way of get back at them and put them in place. You mean they would like, put you down for that? Yes. Would you put them in their place verbally or did you? Verbally yeah. and aggressively too. I, <laughs> I hit this the This makes boys sense to sometime. me that you, you would get physical? <laughs> I get physical. I punch them. I scratch their faces. I hit them. So, yes. <laughs> and do you, were you naturally like that? Like, did you have natural instincts that allowed you to take care of yourself in that way? I think I am, yes. Yeah. So I, you were born strong. I born strong because yeah. my mother always strong. She also mother. modeled that for you. Yes. This makes total sense to me, having seen you in your restaurant. Because <laughs> we spoke last night when I came to dinner. And right. I don't want to name who it was, but there mm. was a, there was a, I came in with a, a group of people and there was a chef, fairly well-known chef, when mm-hmm. I came to the restaurant in Philly uh, about, a, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And... You know, he was kind of giving you a hard time a little bit, and mm-hmm. you absolutely—you were so unfazed. You were so able to 
handle it. He was just joking, but I don't know if you knew that because yes. he's someone who seems a little severe. Right. And you absolutely just shut it down, but in the most charming way. It was amazing to me to watch. This is where it comes from, though. And that too, and I think is because part of me, I was a flight attendant. Yeah. I spent 20 something years of my life taking care of people, um, you know, working in an airline, meeting different, you know, people from everywhere. That taught me a lot. So mm-hmm. we know how to, how to take care of people, but in the same time, we know how to take care of ourselves. We know how to set the boundaries. You know how to diffuse a we difficult situation. We know how situation. to, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it came naturally. Yeah, yeah, I totally got After that. After 20-something years. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were, uh, like when you were a young person, like when you were a teenager, what did you think you were going to, because you've had a couple of careers. We'll get to them in a minute. You also yes. ran a, an Italian restaurant, which I want to know about. Yeah. But um, uh, what did you think you were going to do? Did you think you would end up, I mean, both restaurants and being a, fl- I mean, flight attendants, uh, there's a lot of safety stuff involved too. But I would put, broadly, I would put both of those things in the, under the umbrella of hospitality in some way. Yes. In some way. Did you think you were going to do something like that when you were young? Or what did you think? No, I, my father wanted me to be a nurse because he worked in the hospital. And I always, you know, hang out with him in the hospital after school. I saw all those, you know, we call them auntie that wearing white uniform. And I love that. I love what they're doing. I want to be a nurse. But then I realized as I grew up that I'm sucked at math and science. I, I didn't. I hate school. I never like to go to school. School not? is not for me. No fun. Bored? Bored, totally. I hate math. And I, I don't like sitting in the classroom. Well, there's just a lot of people who end up in the food world. I don't have that relationship with school. <laughs> with yeah. school. Yeah. It's very, very stressful to go to school. Yeah. So that's so interesting. I mean, you're clearly a very intelligent person. <laughs> did, did you know, this is a question I always want to ask when somebody says that to me. Did you know, though, that you were smart? Like, did you know, did you, were you, because you hated school, did that create an insecurity in you that maybe you weren't intelligent? Did it take you until you were working and an adult to recognize that you were actually a very intelligent person? I did not know that I was a smart kid and I, because I'm really bad at school, and when I was younger, you know, I was always on the top of my class. But as I get older, hate going to school, don't like to study, it became really, I struggle with that. So I always, like, you know, on the bottom of the class, sitting at the back of the class, and never do well. But I think I am very good at, you know, dealing with the exam. So I always pass. Mm-hmm. I have my way of doing it. You did enough to get by. I did enough to get by. Yeah. But, you know, 53 years passed, look back, I'm not a stupid person. I can't say that I'm smart, but I think, you know, I, I could manage and I could deal with whatever happened in my life. You know, as I get older, maybe I get wiser a little bit. But it wasn't for you that you, I mean, I hear this from so many cooks. It was just, it was the setting. It was the structure of school that you didn't like. It's it wasn't hard. that you, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you routine. must have to do some of this stuff now as a, as, a, as a business person. You must, unless you've got your partner to do it. I got my husband. Your husband does it? <laughs> he does the books? My husband, <laughs> my husband is my 
guardian angel. Okay. He just he take care of lots of things for me. That's great. Yeah, that's great. So, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. It should work like that. Yeah. You know, so I've I've read I've read what I could find to read about you. I'm a little unclear on the chronology. What came first? So, is it? I assume the restaurant came before the flight attendant career. No. The flight attendant career came first. Yes. I'm talking about the restaurant, the Italian restaurant. Yes. I graduated from uh, college and then I moved to Bangkok. Yeah. I worked at telephone operator and receptionist in Japanese company for two years. And then I applied for Kuwait Airways. I went to Kuwait Airways. I went to live in Kuwait after Iraqi invasion. 1991. From 1991 to 1992. Three, I worked for Kuwait Airways. I moved back to Thailand. I started my job at Thai Airways, and then I was flight attendant. 2003, I opened Italian restaurant together with being a flight attendant. You were doing both things at once? Three, actually three, because I helped my close friend that we grew up together running a jewelry business as well. So I've been working three jobs. Uh, from two, uh, 2003 until 2009. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've been working every day. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. For seven years. Okay. First, I want to ask the flight attendant part, or even just applying to an airline. What drew you to that? What made you want to do that? First, I want a better life for myself because, you know, working in Japanese company in Bangkok, it doesn't... You know, we don't make much, and traffic in Bangkok back then was really bad. And I don't drive, I take public transportation, I, and I had motion sickness, so I, I suffer a lot. Then I saw an ad for Kuwait Airways, they offer the housing, the transportation, and I was like, this is my dream job. But I'm totally insecure because, you know, my English wasn't good, I don't think I'm pretty enough. So, you know, and but I said, you know, this is my best chance to get out of my life in Thailand. So I sent the application. The day I sent the application for the first time that evening, Iraqi invaded Kuwait. Oh my God. So, <laughs> did you take that as a sign? <laughs> like, okay. Right. <laughs> I suck it up. So, <laughs> and then, you know, after the war was over, the war was over in 2000, I think, um, 1991. And they called us immediately for the training. We trained in Thailand and then they flew us to Kuwait. Yeah. And I started flying then. Okay. And did you enjoy it? I loved it. What did you love about it? People, food. That's the first time I discovered the culinary world because Thai people know, Thai flight attendants know as the most hard worker because we cannot speak much of English. So we keep our head down, just like in the kitchen as well. And we just do work. it. Work, yeah. Work. So we get promoted to first class very fast because, you know, they need us in the galley. Part of Kuwait Airways, when you get trained in first class, they train you in the kitchen. Is There's a program, program called Sky Chef. And first class in Kuwait Airways, they serve the best food. Yeah, we get sure. trained in the kitchen with the yeah. chef. Yep. We learn everything about the food. about And, you know, that's when I really get, get into food. 
is open my eyes. Then I found that I like to go to the market. I love to spend money on going out and have lavish dinner. Even I have to do it myself. It started since 1992 that I explore the world of culinary. I love caviar. Whenever we landed in Tehran, I will go down and then I'll ask the ground staff to buy me some caviar because I read about caviar. I want to eat it. I want to explore. So I would say that I've been obsessed with food for since the beginning of my career as mm-hmm. a flight attendant. And then the restaurant you ran an Italian restaurant. Yes. In Thailand. In Thailand. Yeah. Where yeah. In, now where was that restaurant? It's in Sukhumvit area. Sukhumvit is a prime area of Bangkok. Yeah. I I own an Italian restaurant and I've been running that place uh, for seven years with my ex-husband and we serve all kind of high-end import food. You know, talking about 2003, you have Wagyu from Australia, we have Tasmanian, you know, Tasmanian seafood and all the best stuff that I could get my hands on. Sometimes when I travel to Europe, I bring it back myself. We have truffle ravioli with four grass in the restaurant. That's our number one selling. I created, you know, some kind of menu there that became a hit. Uh, at least two recipe is one is the female mud crab with the egg. Then, you know, and we toss it with um, angel hair pasta, some dry chili and basil, that's my recipe. And white asparagus wrapped with parma ham and with four cheese sauce is delicious. And those are the dishes that I created for the restaurant. So why Italian? Italian restaurant was very famous in Thailand. And, you know, I saw the business opportunities and, you know, just go for it. And how did you educate yourself about Italian food? I mean, you just rattled off all these menu items, but you know, you grew up in Thailand eating Thai. Like, how did you? You have a big smile as I ask this question. How did you? Did you go and spend time in Italy? Did yes. you? How, like, what did you do to get up to get up to speed? Because you're a serious person, right? You're not going to do an Italian restaurant unless you know what you're doing. So, how did you? live up to that? I swapped the flight because as a flight attendant, we can change our flight. So I would always change my flight, swap the flight with my colleague to Rome or to Milan. I go eat in the restaurant. I learn to cook. I talk to the local groceries. I talked, I went to the market and I brought the stuff back to my restaurant in Thailand. I start cooking. I learned that, you know, Puntarele is good with anchovy sauce yes it is right 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 and in Love the it. ghetto in in rome you have um cachofi alla romana the food and i we 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 speak the same language i can see clearly through food and that's how my brain work you have like a fluency with food you you pick it up easily i pick it up so easy yeah. i ate it once i brought it back home to bangkok I find a way to smash the kachofi, artichoke open like how they did it, and we start selling it with you know uh, anchovy aioli, mm-hmm. and yeah anchovy sauce, and I make puntarelle with garlic, lamb, chili, and um, and anchovy sauce, and that's because you know I am very persistent when I know I want to learn for two years that all my flight is. Bangkok, Rome, Milan, or Paris. And I travel in between. 
I would take the train from Rome or Milan, traveling all over Italy, explore the restaurant alone. Did you ever ask people to teach you or show you or just even ask them how they did what they did in their restaurants? Like if you went somewhere and had a great, you know, like you said, artichoke alla, alla what are they called? Artichoke alla Romagna? That's yeah, the same artichoke, as alla Judea? Like, no, That's sorry, like alla Judea. Alla Judea. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. not alla Romagna, alla Judea. Yeah, fried yeah. artichoke. Fried yeah. artichoke. So if you mm-hmm. had a great one somewhere, would you mm-hmm. say to them, how do you, did you ask how they did it? How did you learn? I mean, it's one thing to recognize what's good, Mm -hmm. but how did you learn the technique? I always love to talk to the chef. I always been curious. I ask. I and uh, for me, one thing about me is I never shy talking to stranger. So and I'm very curious. I'm very nosy. So too sometimes I like just like poke my head into the kitchen, see what they do, and and I make friends along the way. And I spent some time with my friend's family in Rome. His nonna, she used to own a restaurant. She taught me how to make a little, little meatball. And I learned how to make, you know, brodo from her, tomato sauce, and a little trick that I could learn from her. I said, whenever I pick up on the trip, when I went back to the restaurant, I work with my chef and I try, I exploit right away. And was the restaurant, I mean, seven, so it was successful? It was very successful. It was seven good years of yeah. my life. Uh, small restaurant, same size with Kalaya. We hosted, you know, politicians, celebrity, royal families. Yes. It was golden seven years. I love my restaurant. Now, when you first started talking about the restaurant, you named a lot of ingredients that we would call luxury ingredients, right? You talked about yes. uh, truffles. You talked about foie gras. I don't know if this counts as a luxury ingredient, but it's not cheap. You talked about white asparagus. Yes. A lot of these things were things you had to bring in from other countries. What strikes me when I hear that, I've read in a number of interviews with you, you talk about uh, fashion. You have a love of fashion. Yes. Big smile. (laughs) You you have a love of of the best, right? Do you connect this tendency toward luxury ingredients in that restaurant with that? With that part of you, you seem to be someone who really has an appreciation for what we call the finer things. You seem to really appreciate quality, craftsmanship, um, the best, right? Is that accurate? It is very accurate. And I was thinking about this the other day. And then I think, you know, growing up with my mother, with my families, that even we have no money, but the food, seafood that we put in on our table, it has to be the best of that day that we could afford. And then, you know, it, it became part of me. I love fine stuff because I grew up, I've been raised finely because, you know, um, taste and money, it doesn't have to come together. But, you know, that I think it and part of me loving fighting is became the big part that drive me. It's give me, you know, it's driven me to the max that you have, I have to work hard. I have to earn it. If I want, if I want this, if I want to do this, this is what I need to do to Get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. If I want the best stuff in my restaurant, what do I do? I have to sort it. I have to talk to people. I have to test it. You know, and if I want the fine stuff for my in the you know, in my closet, what do I do? I have to seek for it. 
-hmm. have to work hard for it. There's nothing come easy, and and I think that's you know is. Part of my life is my personality as reflected is ref reflected in so many ways that you know, and it became me. This yeah. is who I am. There's also, I think, a lot of you know, when people when you come from a you know, if you have a childhood where you weren't you know you weren't privileged enough to have a lot of those things. No, we don't. I think a lot of people from that kind of uh, who have that kind of personal history. There's always I don't want to say the fear, but there's always. In the back of your mind, this sense of whatever what I have could go away, right? Like yes. you, you never take it for granted, and I think that no. that motivates you for life. You know, thinking about that, talking about that, you know, every Chinese New Year, our neighbor that they have, you know, they're wealthier. They're wealthy. We are not. They will have one dish that I love is sea cucumber and is an abalone. It's considered as you know luxurious items, mm -hmm. and. And I love it. I taste it. I love it. And I always find a way. Like, how would I be able to put this in front of, for my mom one day? How would I do it? I always promise myself. You know, whenever I saw it, I said, "We, I will have to be able to provide my my family this kind of food, this kind of living one day." So, did you ever go back and? Do this? I did. You did. I did. Yeah. That's we, so great. We have our um, offering for our ancestor every year in April. Um, the first year that I went home after I moved to America, went to culinary school. I put all that menu for my mom. I cook it for her. I make fish more. I make sea cucumber. I yeah. I cook for her. That just like with the memory of that the meal that that family had, and we could not. Afforded back that then. was your inspiration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would have mm -hmm. loved to have been at that table. I bet it was great. I bet that was great. Yeah. <laughs> I did that, and she loved it. <laughs> How do you get from there to here? How did you end up in Philadelphia? I met my husband on the plane. He was my passenger, and it was the direct flight from Bangkok to New York. It's 18 hours. I was working in business class, and and there are not so many passengers to take care of that flight and, and Ziv was on the flight. And we started to talk and he asked me out and we had our first date and we kept, we didn't keep in touch until I came back to, the, to New York again and we reconnected and you know, two years after we got married. What year did you meet? I met him 2006. Okay. Yes. Okay, so 15 yeah. years now from the first meeting. Oh my God. Yeah, 15 happy years yeah. because it's time gone by very fast. Yeah. Tell me if this is too personal, but you're working as a flight attendant. You have this passenger. He asked you out. Was that the kind of, did that happen a lot? Were you hesitant? Was it, uh, did this feel special when he, did he seem like different? Because that has to, I mean, it was way worse a long time ago, but you, this couldn't have been the first person in your cabin who tried to ask you out on a date. Right. No? Am I yeah, wrong? Yeah, it's, it's happened a lot, yeah. but you know, I I don't know what happened. Why I decided to go out with Steve It's probably like you know that's right after my divorce, and I I feel like I am a grown woman, and I should be able to go out and do what you know the other people do, like you know, go out with stranger, yeah, and right. have a date, yeah. Because you know, it's, it's and I think it's, it's meant to be between me and Steve. It's meant to be. So you had a feeling this was okay. 
as it was okay for me to like you know go out with yeah. a guy in New York. It seemed romantic yeah. and didn't and seem creepy. He didn't. That, seem he like, doesn't seem creepy. Yeah. I didn't know that you know where he worked. I I did not like you know to ask him much. But um, then when we came. We met in New York. We went to MoMA and we start talking, and he's kind of like he's his number guy. He's super smart and like, oh, this guy's very interesting. Opposites yeah. attract. Very <laughs> totally. Oh my God, totally opposite. So was he living in Philadelphia at that time, or he, he lived, lived in New in York? He lived in Philadelphia, okay. and he catched the train to come back to see me Got in it. New York. Okay. Yeah, and I was late for the meeting. For, for our first uh, appointment because I took the long route to the AMS store on medicine yeah. and I found a handbag that I like and I was trying to get that and then I found out I was late and you know I managed to get that handbag and then I ran from 67 in medicine probably okay. the AMS store then to MoMA to meet with him I yeah, hope we, this wasn't in the summer it was. Oh my and God! I know, I know, and yeah, and then no, it was the end of the year. It was September. Okay. September, yeah, and then we went to Moma and we start talking, and he we went for dinner, and he took the train back to Philly. Okay. And we did not connect until I come back in February. So when you two end up getting married, you end up moving to a new country. Yes. Uh, place that uh, new language. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, to another, you know, a different, a, a very, um, a city that in its own way is very unique, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if you know this about me, by the way, that's my, my half of my family was from oh. Philadelphia. My grandmother was from Philadelphia. My father was from Philadelphia. How daunting, how intimidating was the idea, of, was, if at all, of moving there? Was, was that, did it seem like an adventure or did it seem a little scary or both? No, because, Andrew, I, been, I was a flight attendant, so I always travel. Sure. I never live in one place. My life is suitcase in the hotel room. So moving to Philly, actually it was very exciting for me because I'm excited to have a routine. I I was dreaming of this life. I I want to be a housewife because that's I never been. One thing I never been. I want to take care of one person, cooking, gardening, and and have a routine. I was excited to move. Yeah. And be still. And be still. Right. Not be up in the air. Not yes. be running from have, your restaurant to the airport. Have a life. Yes. You craved that sort of. You I, craved a little tranquility. Yes, I did not know that that I craved that until I start living that life, and I loved it, because when I first moved, I I decided to come to New York to culinary school, and I spent six months, no more than that, in New York. You went to the F, the French Culinary the French Institute. French Culinary, right. yeah, and, and I had my internship in Nucatine. And then when I moved back to Philly, that's when I really, you know, start having my real retirement life and the routine that I can go to yoga every day. I garden, I talk to neighbors, I talk to everybody in my neighborhood, very strange, crazy Thai lady that feed everyone. I cook, and then I was just like, you want to try this? I want to have friends. And you wanted I, downtime. I mean, if, am yeah. I right? You sounds like you had no downtime until yes. this. I, yeah. I never have like ever. No, yeah. not not for that. Especially from two thousand three that I opened the restaurant and run other business and being flattened then until I 
or quit and move to America, I'd never have downtime. What motivated you? You just mentioned it. This was one of my big questions for you because you didn't have the restaurant yet in your head. No. What motivated you to go to cooking school? What motivated you to go to the French Culinary Institute? Julia vs. Julia movie. Julia Child. The movie. Julia and Ju- yes. Julia and Julia. Yeah, Julia and this Julia. Is, you're the second guest in a month who really? had. Yeah, there's a couple in Brooklyn that was just on the show. Uh huh. Where they watched this movie together, and they now they own two two restaurants. Right. This is so funny. So you watched that movie. And I what watched happened? that movie on the flight with Zeev. And then I turned to him and said, honey, I know what I'm going to do when I move to America. I'm going to school. Yeah. And then he said, okay. And then he brought me to New York. We went to see the school. And I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Now, did you do the full-time program or did you do the lot technique? No, I did full-time, six months. Full-time? Yes. And I had so much fun. I don't hate school this time. I (laughs) love school. Because I break it day by day. It's so expensive. I said, oh, God. I have to make the most of it. I can't be playing. Yes. This is serious. Yeah. I'm going to guess. You tell Mm -hmm. me if I'm right or wrong. I would imagine when you get to cooking school, having had your restaurant, having cooked with your mom as a kid, that you, I imagine, found out that you actually already knew a lot of what they were teaching. I bet you... In some form, maybe not exactly the way they were teaching it, but that you had a real aptitude already for cooking, even formally the way they were showing you. I found out I had the palate that different, and I am really good at this. That's what I find out. I find out that this is for me. Right. What do yeah. you mean that when you say a palate? You a say palate. You had a good palate naturally? I have a good palate naturally. Okay. Now yeah. that school is very French focused. So mm-hmm. even like in that realm, like you had done Italian, you grew up eating Thai food, but mm-hmm. so you're tasting or cooking, you know, things like duck all orange and, yes. and palm mm-hmm. souffle. And My will taste better than anybody. You had a natural ability to, to yes. nail it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like at the graduation, one of the chefs said, everybody don't forget more salt. But not for Nook. <laughs> you got it right. That's what Chef Lisa said, yeah. Okay. Which chef? Chef Lisa. Chef Lisa, Lisa. okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. So then you come back to Philly. I went back to Philly. And you start, tell me, because it sounds like you, I mean, you, you said a minute ago you would cook, you would share with your neighbors, people, then people, was this right, would start asking you to like cater for them and things like that? Um, that took me about seven years, yes. But I went back home. I don't want to work. I just want to have, you know, the downtime. So I never plan to work, but I love cooking. So I start to cook more and more um, at home. And I will watch Food Network every day from 1 to 3 p.m. And then I'll see what Ray Drummond cook or Barefoot Contessa. And then I'm, I just like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Um, but what you did know, you mean by this is what I'm going to do? Like, I saw did you Il see Flotente. yourself being on television? No, or no. What did you mean? The recipes. Okay. This is what I'm going to do tomorrow. Oh, this because is what this I'm going to make. Yeah, okay. for me to learn what American eat, the best way is watching Ray Drummond. And if I want to know what is simple French food, I got to watch Barefoot Contessa. Okay. So, and then, you know, use my imagination and get gather the ingredients and start cooking. Now, would you cook it faithfully or did you make it your own? When you I would make cook it my those own. dishes, you would put a little spin on it. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I can't follow the rule. <laughs> it's too boring. I understand. Yeah. But would the spin be like, uh, you didn't take it in like a Thai direction, right? You Or did you? 
No. You would no. just do something that made it unique, yes. a little more of this or a little, a little less more of, of yeah. that, yes. Or maybe an, a different herb or yeah. something that like, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and that's the same what I did before I went to school when I first uh, came to America to spend time with Steve before I... I permanently moved here. I will ask. I don't know how to use computer. Then I don't. I don't email. I don't know how to Google. Um, so I ask him to. You know, if I saw the recipe, I'm gonna ask him to. You know, print out a few recipe for me, from one. You know, same dish, and I'll look through it. And I said, I just put the recipe away. I gather the ingredient and I start cooking. That is always how I cooked. Yeah. It takes time for me to process and think about the how I gonna make a dish and then I paint it in my head, gather my thought, and then I put it together. What's interesting to me is that cooking, even even at home, right? Even for just a few people, it can be a lot of work. So on the one hand, you were having this downtime. You ha you could do whatever you wanted. You had this, you know, you went from having to work so hard to having the luxury of not having to work. But yet every day you put yourself in the kitchen, right? Yes. That, um, I'm assuming it didn't feel like, it must not have felt like work to you. That you were just following an, an instinct, a passion. That's how I love to spend my time. Yeah. I love cooking. All I think I think about food all the time, either food or fashion. But let's say seventy percent food, and and I can I cannot get it out of my head unless I start cooking. What is it? What about it appeals to you most? If you can even say that. So what I mean is, is it the act of cooking itself? You know, a lot of people talk about that's very meditative. It mm -hmm. takes them out of their head. They get lost in it. Is it the satisfaction of finishing something and you know tasting it and saying mm -hmm. I nailed it, or is it ser serving it to other people, or is it something else, or is it all of those things? What uh, is it that uh, what is it that like drew you into that kitchen every day? I think you know the picture that is just like when you start painting is the blank canvas, that's the ingredients, and when you start drawing and finishing it, and you can play it. That's my finished project. Not like I want to, I need a project, no. But because I, I love to explore and that's my, that's my passion. That's my passion, that's what drew me in, you know, to the kitchen in the morning and start thinking what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And what I have after that is the friendship because I start feeding the neighbors. I cannot eat all the food I cook because sometimes I make like five, six dishes. So, you know, I give it out to everybody. I created a friend. I, I built the relationship. And finally, I could build a business from that. How long ago was this? I mean, the restaurant's not that old. How long ago, like when you talk about feeding your neighbors, how far back was that? I've been feeding the neighbors since I went back home in 2011. Okay, so that's 10 years ago. 10 years ago. I so that went, on for, that went on for several years before yes. you think about doing a restaurant. I never thought of doing a restaurant. Never. So how'd you end up with one? <laughs> because people start asking me for my food. And, and then, you know, I started a small catering business that from my own kitchen. Because they said, you know, we cannot have you cooking for us for free. Because, you know, at first I will give like 70 cup of panna cotta, beautifully decorated for my friend's father's birthday. And then, you know, they start like 
let me pay let us pay you for that so that's how i can start my catering business and the final the last one that i did from home is was a croque bouche for 130 people beautifully with you know uh, sugar spun and all that and chocolate and the party that's from one small kitchen and i put a big pause into it because i know it's too risky i know it's not safe and i told my husband i'm gonna look for the small kitchen to start my business catering not the restaurant and then how'd you get from that to the restaurant i saw the space and it's so cute there is a little chair there's a big bare window as you see yeah. the space is is talking to me <laughs> and this is the space that is now kalaya yes yeah. yeah the space was talking to me it just lure me in and then the landlord was super nice and then before i know it i give him the check not for the rent, just for the negotiation fee. Yeah. Because I feel like I want to have the skin in the game. Now, when you say before you know it, I was just I read that you gave it to him on the spot. Like yeah. Right when you saw the space, yes. you wrote him a check. Yes. Yeah. I, for the from a person who barely have cash in the wallet, I've been spending like this past month have no money in my wallet. But that day, I don't know why I had the checkbook in my purse. Did your husband know you were doing this, or you just? Did he it? did not because he was somewhere. On the planet that I when I call, when he called, I said, I found the space. I just signed a check for him, and he said, No, you are not doing that. And I said, Why don't you go talk? You know, when you come back, we go talk to them. We see the space, and if you don't want to do it, you know, I, I'll you know, we see. And he came to meet with Paul and Donna, the landlord, and and you know. The rest of the history, I, I got my restaurant. And one thing that Steve told me, he said, this is the idea that I've been cooking in my head for a long time, and I should do it. In and Cooking in his head, or in he my knew head, it was in your head? The idea that I've been cooking in my head. So you, you opened this restaurant. You've had this huge success. You also, as a personality, have had a success. People gravitate to you. They, they talk about, I, I've read all these articles getting ready to speak to you, and they point out, and I noticed this when I came to the restaurant, you are a magnetic personality in that restaurant. I, I almost feel like it's, I don't mean it's insincere, I don't wanna sound that way, but I almost feel like there's a performance that happens when you're in your dining room, that you something turns on in you. Um, something goes on, and you, mm -hmm. the way you host people, you're, you know, I, I even seen you in someone else's restaurant last night, you weren't quite, you were a little more subdued, does this make sense? Yes. But in your restaurant, you are a grand figure. You are a huge personality. You're funny. You're enthusiastic. You're a star. You, I mean, you are. I mean, did you have a growing sense that you had that within you over these years when you were going to cooking school and cooking for neighbors? Or have you been surprised by how you've emerged in the last few years? Did you have I, a growing sense of, I mean, I don't want to sound melodramatic but did mm -hmm. you have a growing sense of almost destiny about what you were capable of you know andrew to tell you the truth everything is beyond my expectation i knew that i have big personality always but i did not know that i have the capability of entertaining and hosting people 37 of them in my dining room and give all of them enough attention on each sitting. I did not know that I can do that. But two years in now, and I've been doing it every day for two years, two and a half years, I think, you know, it's something that the blessing that I have, and I'm glad I have that gift. And, but 
the part of you know my that I think I have I, why I have what I have because I love my what I'm doing. I love my customer. I am very honest to them. I love my food. I want to present it to the world the right way. There is no other way better than me being my own ambassador and just you know give um, the customer what. You know the sense of they are coming to my place. They are coming to their friend's house, and they are learning. They are coming for the new dining experience, mm-hmm. and they're so, learning my culture because I'm so proud. I love all that. So you surprised yourself when you started doing this. When you started welcoming people into this restaurant that you bought on a whim. Yes. <laughs> You found that you, you know, this is people who are meant to be in the business often have this ability. I caught the rest, the hospitality gene. You, you have a sense of this table needs a, a little bit of attention. Right. I can spend a little more time over here. Oh, yes. I need to go check on this thing in the kitchen. Yeah. Oh, where's this thing mm-hmm. that was right? You yes. have that innate. You have that, whatever that is. You have that sense. Yes, I think that's you know because. Long years of being flight attendant, taking care of people in first class, business class. Everybody need personal attention, and I like details. Second, the restaurant in Bangkok, that very upscale Italian restaurant, dealing with the crowd that need lots of love and attention and recognition. The third, I love good stuff. I travel. I went to lots of beautiful places, a lot of great restaurants. I know what the other people lack, and I know what I want. What the attention that I need when I spend that much money in three Michelin star restaurants that so many people that you know they're lacking. They lack human touch, mm-hmm. and I want my customer to have that from me. If Kalaya could do this to change the to 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 bring some new thing to the industry, that's something that you know, I think is significant for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I I work for. It's so funny because it, again, and even even reading interviews to you uh, with you and articles about you, and I listened to one other podcast you did. I forget the name. It was with uh, uh, Lie. It was a show, it's a it was a Philly show. These two oh, women and a guy oh, hosted visit it. Visit Philly, yeah. They were funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really. Uh, it was cute. you in the interview before you was a film producer. Yeah, Jennifer. So, yes, yeah. Visit Philly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I was even listening to that, and and when you explain it, you know, it makes me think that so many people who go into the restaurant business make it overly complicated, because it seems so organic what you've done. Right? There's this food that you grew up with that you love it. You know how to do it. You found a space that spoke to you. You didn't spend millions of dollars to do a build like a theme restaurant. No. It's a very simple space. I hope you, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but it's no, very no, straightforward. No. Everything yes. about what you do is straightforward, right? Yes. And and then you're there and you ex- you host people graciously with enthusiasm and you explain the food to them. Now that sounds very simple. But Kalaya is a very, I mean, this restaurant's gotten a lot of attention and people gravitate toward it, you know, and I had that same experience. But when I say that, it sounds so obvious and so simple. Is that really all it is? Is there another, is there something, what's the other ingredient? It can't be that simple. That's all. That's it? That's all. The honesty and... Honesty. The honesty. Yeah. And the hospitality. Yeah. Because it starts from the head and it's just go down to, you know... 
the tail. Um, I want to build a new culture of hospitality. So, um, you know, two years in, all my staff, they became, we became one team. Mm-hmm. Everyone love, you know, everyone that came in, they will get well taken care of, even I'm not there. My, my staff, they have no hesitation to help people. They have the freedom to do the problem solving yes. and to offer, to do anything for the customer's satisfaction. And that's what I love about, you know, I, that's what I'm re- really very proud that, you know, the, when you say the hard work paid off, it's reflected on our staff, our front of the house and back of the house. Back of the house, they know the quality of the food that they can send out. They know how to, like, this is not good enough. We're going to send it back. We're going to redo it again. Front of the house, know how to, you know, be graciously taking care of the customer. Mm-hmm. It's not just they come in, they sit down, you please them to get good tip. No, you want them to come back. You didn't do this for the tip. You do this because you love them. You love your food. You believe in our food. You love the place you work. You love your customers. Yeah, it's a true human interaction yes. at your restaurant. That's it what is. we want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. What do you get out of it personally? I mean, you had this sweet life where you didn't have to work, you know, and now you're. <laughs> yes. And yeah. now you're working like crazy. Right, like you got you, yes. you put yourself in a like on a conveyor mm-hmm. belt, right? Yes. Like you put yeah. yourself on a thing that like now you're running again all the time, right? Yes. Um, what What do you personally? I mean, everything you just described is about giving to other people. What do you get out of it? What do you, what What is it that sust, you know sustains you in a in a in a very difficult? We were talking before I started recording, right? Mm-hmm. And you said both, you know, our our worlds are so tough. They yes. are. What you do is really yeah. hard, and especially, you know, who saw the pandemic coming? Well, you saw it. I read you saw it coming because you, yeah. you had gone home in, what, January of 20? Yes. And you knew, yeah. you, I knew, you it, knew it was going to get here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but even without that, it's a hard business, right? What Very makes it hard. worth it for you? What made it worth it for you to get back into the, you know, into the, into the race? So to answer this question, Andrew, I, I was thinking about this. And I think this is about our industry. It's not just for me. So many successful chefs, so many people in our industry, they lost their family. They, they go through a lot of you know, depression, lots of problem, you know, drug and all that, just because they want to work for things they love. This industry is sad and stressful, but the other hand is very rewarding. For me, I didn't pick the sad and stressful part. I turn that into the positive energy, and that's what in this for me is the positivity that I could, you know, that that I I love and I love those energy. Um, so the happiness is what for me the happiness of creating something very meaningful, very different, and and if. You know, one of me could inspire the minority or any woman or any chef that want to cook the food that they believe and present it in a very, very honest way, non-manipulative. You know, just that's what I need. And that's, you know, that's what I would dream of. So that feeds you. That that feeds you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The last thing I want to ask you about is you opened a market 
yes. uh, during the pandemic. Yes. Was it September of last year? Uh, October last October year. Of la- October of yes. 2020, you opened a market. Can yes. you just tell people briefly what, just what is the market? What's the breadth of what it offers? What it, and, and why did you do it? Um, so that is the word that, you know, that I created for this uh, business. You can take the girl out of the market, but you cannot take the market out of the girl. I grew up in the market. I crave it. I, I want to bring my memory. Kalaya is about the memory. It's very personal, and the market is also the same. I want to have something that represents my, my childhood. Something that, you know, is, is remind me of my home because I live at the other part of the world. So, you know, grew up helping my mom in the market and, and doing all of that. I, this is the second project that I want to create to bring me closer to home. And I did not know that until the project was completed and a few, and like a few months after I was sitting in the market in the market by myself, look around, and I was like, shit, I became my mom, 100%. You went back to where you started. Exactly, selling curry paste, selling food, feeding people, taking care of the other, taking care of the staff. That's my mother. That's fine. (laughs) Was that a a happy thought? It's a a happy thought, and it's just like... Every morning, woke up, look at myself in the mirror, and just like turn to sleep. My husband said, "I'm looking at my like my mother more and more and more." He said, "You're absolutely right." Oh so, my gosh! Yeah, I miss her. Uh-oh. I miss my mom. Where, what do you think about the future now? Do you do you are you very you feel you feel like right now what you have is pretty much you feel like this is it for a while? I could do more, and I would love to do more. Would yes. It, if you don't mind my asking, if you don't yeah. want me to ask, tell mm-hmm. me. But would you, without getting, to, you know, saying more than you want, do you think you mm-hmm. would do? Do you like you have other restaurants in your imagination, or is it something more along the lines of what the market is, or like a smaller kind of an offshoot, like as much as you're comfortable? Saying. Yes, I would love to. You know, I would love to do the cookbook. I would love to have my recipe in writing because at Kalaya we are very unique. We never have the recipe. We don't have standardized recipe at Kalaya. Everybody cook from there. Yes, we really? never. No, no. So they know. They, they know come what in, to do. They taste. They know they what taste. they know what yes. the target is. They know is. the ingredients. Yes. And if as long as they get there, everybody's happy. Everybody happy. Wow. Yes. Yeah, they know the ingredients. They know the flavors. Right, but they so, don't. It's not a tablespoon of this. Never. A, no. No. Wow. So you you have well, a that means you have a lot of trust in your team. Yes. And B I do. It means you're a good teacher. Yes. Uh, that's mind blowing to me, actually. That's yeah. mind blowing. I I I normally do the expedite of the food myself in the restaurant, so that way I can see how the food come out. I taste almost every dish that came out. The first year, the first 10 months before the pandemic hit, we sell the steamed Brancino. I would say I taste, after we fillet, I taste every fish that come back in the kitchen if I'm in the kitchen. I don't know how usual that is to not have recipes. It's amazing. We it works so well. We don't have the recipe. Yeah. No. Except the, the, the dumpling bar dough and the curry paste. That's right. all that you know. That the the recipe that we and otherwise written. and otherwise you rely on the taste memory and the ability of your yes, team. yeah. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with me. Thank I, you so I'm much. I'm so happy to see you again. I loved dinner. It was so great to have your food again. It was great to have Hong's food too. If Hong's listening, I got to say yes. that. Um, and I can't wait to come visit in Philly again. 
Yeah, thank you so much, and it's so nice to reconnect with you. And I'm honored to be on the show, and this is, you know. And this is why I love what I'm doing because if I'm not doing this, if I'm not doing the restaurant, I would never know you. We, we create a lot of fr- I created a lot of friendship. A lot of good thing come out of the restaurant. It's lovely. It's lovely, and it's very rewarding. And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Nox Suntaranan and Joshua David Stein. If you are in Philadelphia, please be sure to check out Kalaya Restaurant and Market. And no matter where you are, give Josh's website a look. Again, we do link to all that at the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. We'd appreciate it if you support us by telling a friend posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which does help new listeners find the show. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram, at Chef Podcast is the handle for that. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>